Welcome back to Nighttime Live here on the Mighty 790 KFGO. Bob Harris here along with Scott Sorm. And boy, do we have a special guest for you tonight. He is the writer, director, producer of The Sandlot, among um, many, many more motion pictures. He's now an author as well. And uh, he is joining us from his home in Florida. And we haven't talked to this guy for I don't know how many years, but welcome back, David Mickey Thomas. Man, it's been way, way too long. It has, Bob. How come you never call me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? We have exchanged emails once in a while, and one of the big reasons why you're uh, talking with us tonight is that uh, you put together a new book called The King of I'll never get it right. King of Pacoima. There we go. And uh, believe it or not, folks, I read this book two years ago. It's true. It's true. And we have kept in touch by email. That's, I think, why God created that wonderful communication device. So thanks, Bob. Uh, listen, I did. I put the book together, and um, uh, it took a long, long time, over 20 years, believe it or not. It was sort of one of those labors of love that's always been on my desk, and I finished it many, many years ago, and it's always just sort of been sitting there staring at me. And uh, it is um, the book, the novel, upon which I based the movie Radio Flyer 20 years ago. Uh, the screenplay for that movie. And uh, as often happens when movies get made in in Hollywood, especially the studio system, you know, the screenplay that you sell uh, ends up being substantially different from uh, what you intended. Mm -hmm. And um, so the movie Radio Flyer is uh, not by leaps and bounds, but in in some pretty important ways, much different than what I meant, what I intended, and what I had written, not just in the screenplay, but especially in the novel. So in these intervening years, you know, social media explosion and all that sort of thing, I've got a blog, I've got a uh, Flying Wagon Books website, you know, Facebook pages, and all that sort of thing. Um, and uh, many, many year after year after year, and the hundreds of uh, posts that I've put on my blog, the number one post that people from all over the world seem to read, like 60% of the hits, go to this one blog post, which was an article, excuse me, an interview I did, with a journalist with this question, what happened to Bobby at the end of Radio Flyer? <laughs> and people people want to know, because in the in the movie, uh, the, the director intended it to be, uh, quote, a Rorschach test. In other words, you know, you, the audience, the viewer, you're supposed to sort of make up your own mind about what happened to this little boy. That's never what I intended, and that's not what's in the novel. All of the, uh, all of the answers to all of those questions are there, so... One day it occurred to me, you know what, i, I got to put all of this conjecture and debate to bed once and for all. So I got the uh, manuscript out and uh, uh, included a lot of images, a lot of uh, photographs that are anonymized uh, from my own childhood, a lot of wonderful artwork from a, a great artist friend of mine, Arlen Jewell, storyboards by a, a great Hollywood storyboarder, Paul Power. Put them all together and laid them out in such a fashion that I think they complement very well the voice, the the the, the the history teller or the narrator's voice in the in the book is is an adult but writing from his own eleven year old perspective. So all that's not confusing, but the idea was to give give the text, the story, a sense of authenticity uh, that it actually happened and a sense of profound honesty. And so far in the you know week or two that the book has been out, a couple of weeks. Everybody, uh, you know, I've, all the reviews I've gotten on Amazon are all five-star, and I'm getting tons and tons of emails, um, people saying that it's really hit them emotionally, you know, in a very good way. 
uh, and a lot of thank yous and, and, and great stuff. So I'm very, very encouraged. By, by the way, I, you know, I think that's one of the things that you are probably best known about is that you can really bring this nation's childhood back to them. I mean, all the stories that you've done, basically, and, and movies you've done, basically have been around childhood or kids growing up, and I think that's what really brings... For example, I mean, I can I can picture myself in my fort back when I was a kid, the same one that's in this uh, in this book of yours. Yeah, I, I've heard that uh, a lot, and, and that's I'm very grateful for that, because that... Listen, I, I find, you know, the ages of maybe 11, 12, and 13 to be... Uh, you know, really, really right there at the front of my brain. Um, you know, my, my childhood and my adolescence was not particularly happy. Um, but I think that maybe, well, if I can self-psychoanalyze for a second, that's maybe why the times and the things that I experienced that were good are such a big deal to me, storytelling-wise. So, you know, may, it was. it's obviously always a cathartic sort of thing when I'm mining my own childhood and my own experiences, <clears throat> but uh, these days, even more to the point, I think, I think there's some melancholy in me about what you're describing, Bob, because, you know, I mean, last year for about eight, nine months, I did, wrote, drove 33,000 miles all over the United States on tour with another movie. I did The Sandlot for its 20th anniversary, and we showed it at like 25, 26, uh, major league baseball parks and minor league parks. And so I got to meet hundreds of thousands of people and kids and parents and, you know, uh, adults that are in the 20 to 30, 35 range and grandparents, everybody telling me what the, the movie The Sandlot meant to them and, and how much it reflected their own childhoods and all that sort of thing. So that same sort of, it's a, it's a little bit of sorrow because I don't think those kinds of things exist anymore. Uh, in the oh. physical world, I got a lot asked a lot. It's like you know, is there? Do you think the Sandlot is? Are there any Sandlots anymore? This is well, you know, there's a lot of organized sports, but that sort of thing that I'm sure you experienced and you share uh, when you were a kid is, you know, especially during summers. Boy, when that sun came up, I left the house and I didn't come back. <laughs> Until that sun was just barely down over that horizon, you know, um, he can't do that today. And I think that's, um, I think that's uh, sad. I, you know, it, it is. I like, and I and you're absolutely right. Two blocks away, we had a vacant lot. One of my buddy's dads cut into the grass a baseball diamond for us, and that's where we played our ball. And yep. uh, and uh, so I know exactly what you're talking about. There was another part in this book, by the way, that I um, and I'll ask you maybe to outline it here in just a second. But there was sure. another part of this book that I thought was very uh, touching because it really grabs at you when the boys have to. Well, they find out that they they've got to go to the hospital, and and one of their parents is having problems. Yeah. Um... And it's, it's, a, it's something that didn't hit me until I was, I was an adult, but when you were a youngster, that really dug at you, that digs at you. Well, there, that's all of those, you know, those are the, the growing up moments, right? Um, when you're a kid is when those, you know, cataclysmic or hugely, I mean, you just can't fathom it. You know, you don't know what's uh, going on. You don't, you need guidance. You need help. You need advice. You need love. Uh, you need uh, protection. 
You know, you need friendship. All those sorts of things. All, all, all of those things are mixed a lot of what the King of Pacoima is about. If I had to boil it down, I would say that the book is about hope and that there is, this is my own personal belief anyway, there is no such thing as hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a frame of mind. And so, you know, through these two young guys, 9 and 11 years old, they eventually become, and they're living in, you know, what most of us would consider a nightmare, that, that hope, that flame of hope never gets extinguished. They, uh, they see it as a problem that needs to be solved. They dive into their imaginations, and they solve it, you know? Um, and I think... That's, again, uh, something that we were just talking about is, where is that today? You know, I, 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 um, I think that's um, a very difficult loss. I mean, you know, even when my kids were growing up in the, uh, in the 90s, that's when I think it sort of began. You know, it was uh, now you can't tear them away from the television, and uh, you can make an argument that there's a lot of imagination in video games and stuff, but... Uh, but it's a sedentary thing, and you're being told what to do. You're not actually creating anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a lot of what the story has to, has to do with, is that's what we are we're, as human beings. We're creators, you know? David Mickey Evans, so. our special guest tonight here on KFGO, the King of Pacoima, is out, and it is doing extremely well. Uh, David, we have to take just a brief break. Uh, we'll be back with more with David Mickey Evans in just a moment here on KFGO. Welcome back to Nighttime Live. We continue our discussion with uh, David Mickey Evans, the new book called The King of Pacoima. You know, there was a lot of people got a little bit nervous. I shouldn't say nervous. That's not the right word. But there is a little bit about uh, child abuse in this in this book. Uh, did you have problems to, as far as trying to put that uh, all-important piece into this uh, book? Boy, that's a, that is a, a good question. And, yeah, that's an enormously touchy subject. I mean, there are volumes and volumes and volumes of other sorts of books. Uh, all, you know, I'm not going to mention any of their titles, but tons and tons of that sort of thing that are written, uh, I think, for the adult world. In other words, you know, memoirs or recountings or chronologies um, of just the, the worst sorts of stories of childhood abuse and obviously, and most importantly, the, the terrible psychological, physical, uh, and emotional residue and how that stays with you your entire life and, and all that sort of thing. My, my intent was never to go there. This, this, this book... Like I think I said a little while ago, it's an adult, but he's writing from the perspective of his 11-year-old self as his 11-year-old self was experiencing what was going on. And when you're that old and experiencing that stuff, you're certainly not experiencing it on an adult level, you know, where you're shaking your head and, and you know, saying that's wrong and, and calling Child Protective Services and all that sort of stuff. You know, you, you're left, I think, when you're a kid with uh, two choices, fight or flight, and both metaphorically and actually in this book, in the story, they certainly can't fight because the physical reality of the king, their stepfather, is such that they, they, they have no weapon. They, have no, they try, but they have no weapon against that mm-hmm. um, to fight. But what they do have is flight, and uh, flight in the sense of running away, flight, but more profoundly, I think, in the sense of getting the younger boy, Bobby, the younger brother, 
away from what is happening to him so that he can go to um, places where, the, where, the, where, quite frankly, the monster can't get him. Um, and I, I've not read, and I've, I've done my research pretty good, I think, not read any other uh, story that chronicles or deals with child abuse in, from that perspective, from that point of view. And, um, you know, a lot of it's autobiographical. I mean, so I, I think I, I can speak authentically about it. And uh, that's a lot of what we did when we were kids uh, to get away is we, we dove into our imaginations and, uh, and uh, concocted. You, I can't even begin to count how many different ways to, to fly away, you know? Mm-hmm. Very much so. And, well, let's put it this way. It involves the, the wagon, obviously, but I... I, mm-hmm. I, I so much of the things the boys do to this wagon, uh, I, I had dreams of things we tried when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. You know? Right. I mean, yeah. and, and and nothing worked, but you'll have to read the book and see uh, see what happens uh, with, the, with, with the wagon at the end of the book. That's all there is to it. Uh, but Bob, now tell me. Seriously, okay, in all honesty, though, when you were a kid, you know, I don't know if you had brothers, sister, whatever, let's say a brother. You did. I know you did. You took that wagon. Okay, and you took it to the top of a hill or the top of your driveway or whatever you did. You put a piece of plywood on it, if that's what you did, that's what we did, you know, or wings or whatever. And you, you went off that curb or you went off that little jump that you made. And even if it was only for a second, <laughs> you did fly, Bob. You did fly. Okay? <laughs> I, absolutely. Oh, I do remember that. I do remember that. And we've got a huge hill here in Fargo by the YMCA, and that's where we did most of it. Uh, downhill track on the sidewalk, and it, it, we got up some pretty doggone good speeds back back in those days. Oh yeah. Uh, David Mickey Evans, our special guest here tonight here on KFGO. You know, I do want to take one more break. I'm going to hold you over for just a second, David, because I want sure. to ask you a couple of questions uh, about a couple of the films. Uh, you, you mentioned The Sandlot having a big, big year last year. I want to get, dive into that just a little bit more here when we come back. David Mickey Evans, our special guest here on the Mighty 790 KFGO. We're back on the Mighty 790 KFGO. After that break, uh, Bob Harris here, Scott Sorm, and David Mickey Evans. His uh, new book is called The King of Pacoima, but he is also has directed and written, and, I mean, he's done everything as far as film is concerned. Probably the biggest uh, one for him was The Sandlot back in 1993. That came right after uh, Radio Flyer. But you, we had touched on it briefly that uh, The Sandlot was getting its uh, 20th uh, anniversary around the Major League ballparks last year. But I think I sent you an email a while back, because I, I was just amazed they had somebody who did a survey, the top 25 baseball characters in movies, and two of them came from the Sandlot. The Sandlot. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. Bleacher Seeds, ESPN Sports uh, Illustrated, the biggie uh, run. That, that The one you're talking about was like of all time, so I think that was a one-off. Uh, they might do it every year now. The other one's like greatest baseball movie ever made and all that sort of thing, the Sandlot. And, you know, Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, all that sort of thing. They're always there in that first big go-round. And the Sandlot for the last two, three years has been number one in every single one of those uh, uh, contests. But, yeah, there are two greatest characters in that top 20 is just phenomenal. Just phenomenal. (laughs) I think I still have the email. I I think I surprised you with it when I sent you that. Yeah, you did. No, I had not seen that. Yeah. 
This is why we we stay together. <laughs> <laughs> there was a couple of more movies I wanted to touch on too. Uh, first of all, Ace Ventura Jr. You did you did that mm-hmm. movie. You were uh, uh, the director. I think you wrote that one too. But mm-hmm. the last time we talked, uh, and it was a long time ago. Uh, I think there was a the guy who uh, Colin was his name played the um, played kind of the guy with the white coat, the professor, whatever you call it. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, Colin Douglas. Yeah. yeah, and we talked about him sliding across the hood of a, the gem car, and uh, it's just yeah. kind of a deal <laughs> that you put in there, and I was the only guy that noticed it, apparently. But I have yeah. to ask you, because, and this, I, I, I should have asked you this last time, but there is, they put this boombox up on top of the vehicle, and then Colin mm-hmm. asked the kid for gum. And we're all sitting yeah. there going, gum, what in the world is one gum for? And yep. then he sticks it in his pocket. He just yep. grabs the stick and sticks it in his pocket. I thought right. that was hilarious. Well, it's a little weird, isn't it? Um, <laughs> we, yeah, it was. I mean, I think my my instructions to those guys, or at least my 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 ideas, was like, look, it has to be real frantic, guys. So you know, these gem cars, they're not. You know, these are not hot rods. They they just they don't go very fast. So I said, but floor it, bring it up here as fast as you can. You know, you got bungee bungee cords on this this silly boom box. If it falls off, I go I go Cullen. Just figure something out, okay? He goes, all right. So the kid was chewing gum or whatever, and it started to fall off. One of the bungee cords actually, you know, snapped or came unraveled or whatever in that in that take. And he says to the kid, like you say, gum, gum, give me gum. And the kid hands him the gum. He's supposed to stick it underneath the boombox to glue the boombox back onto the ceiling, the roof of the gem car. But he was just too excited, and he stuck it in his pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so... It was actually even funnier. You know? That was a that was a very very cute movie, by the way. I really I really enjoyed Man, that. Yeah, that was a good yeah. cast. Sandlot two, by the way. I just want to mention he has such respect, David Mickey Evans, that for Sandlot two, how in God's name did you get James Earl Jones to come back? Um. Well, I have his phone number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I uh, like I called him, and uh, you know he he and I got along. He is first of all. Let me just just say this. He is the single most gracious, nicest, kindest man you will ever meet. He really is. And uh, when I met him on the Sandlot, you know, years ago, um, oh goodness, I think I was 20, 27 years old, and he didn't believe I was the director. It took, you know, my AD and one of the producers had to come up and tell, tell him, no, yeah, really, Dave is the director. And he was, he was sort of astounded. And, uh, and, uh, I think we got along really good because up until that point, I only used him. He only worked one day on the Sandlot, believe it or not. And up until that time, all that summer of 92, it was, I had been working with young actors, kids and, you know, and obviously dogs and animals and stuff. And so as uh, usually happens, you know, kids are terrific, but sometimes it's like herding squirrels and, you know, you go, okay, action and they do it and you go, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. Let's do it again. And this can go on and on for a while. <clears throat> um, as, you know, uh, the summer wore on, they got uh, dialed it in, and, you know, it would be two or three takes rather than six or eight takes or whatever. But at that point, when Mr. Jones walked onto the set and we were introduced, and then he finally believed I was the director, I said, okay, so, you know, shall we rehearse? Or what should we do? He goes, no, I'm, I'm good. I think we can go. I said, okay, you know, that's, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not used to that, but okay. And so I yelled action, and he read the lines, and then I yelled cut. And I was just about to say, okay, that was pretty good. Let's do it again. When it suddenly occurred to me, oh, my God, we don't have to do it again. It was perfect. <laughs> you know, 
he's just that good. <laughs> and uh, so I was just shaking my head. And he says, well, shall we try it a few more times? And I, uh, I think I said, why? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he started cracking up, you know. And I said, wow, man, that's just a remarkable I've been, and he, he understood that because of the, you know, I was working with kids and all that. But anyway, we you know, did a few more times. But from that moment on, it's not like, you know, we were writing each other letters and, you know, uh, going, hanging around together. But he never forgot that. I never forgot that. And gosh, you know, 10, 12 years later, when uh, I wrote The Sandlot 2, I put Mr. Myrtle in there, obviously, because in, in movie time, it was only 10 years later. First mm-hmm. one was ni- supposed to take place 1962. Second one's 1972. So I said, Mr. Murray's still got to be there. And I didn't know if we were going to get him or not. So I called him up and he said, uh, you're going to do number two. I said, look, you know, it's going to be direct to DVD, but I'll do a good job of it. And he goes, no, 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 no. Just tell me where to be. Of course I'm going to do it, David. I would absolutely love to. And he, he flew in. I mean, he, you know, it, it was, that was, it was that easy. For cool. Literally that easy. He's that kind and he really wanted he understood. He 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 knew what a and I you know, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'll repeat other people's uh descriptions, what an institution and a classic the sandlot had become. And he really wanted to be a part of uh of the, uh, you know, helping number two carry on that continuity. Uh because Mr. Myrtle really, if you think about it, anchors with the sandlot itself and that character anchor that story in that place more than anything else. And it was really necessary. So he's a very, very, I like to call him a very dear friend, even although I've only hung around with him for probably three days. <laughs> you know? The the Sandlot, as you talked previously, was uh, around the Major League Baseball 20th anniversary last year. How did you get the word that Major League Baseball said, I want we want to do this in every ballpark? Well, now that's a good question, Bob. They didn't say that. I... At the beginning of 2013, no, end of 2012, called up 20th Century Fox. I said, hey, what are you going to do for the 20th anniversary? And they said, oh, you know, we've got this great new 20th anniversary DVD with a great package and a, and a slipcover that feels like a baseball, like leather and all. And we're going to put baseball cards with the kids. I go, man, that sounds great. I says, why don't we take this thing on tour all over the United States and, and go to, you know, as many major league and minor league ballparks as we can and uh, screen the movie either on game days or, or not. And there was this big pause. And the head of uh, marketing over there, Dave Shaw, great guy, and his, uh, his second-in-command, Christine Lewison, they said, oh, my God, that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> I said, okay, all right, I, I'm going to pack my car, you know, and, and let, let's make it happen. And they did. I mean, they put the Fox marketing machine about uh, uh, around it. I got my schedule, loaded uh, uh, the car up, my, my fiancé and I, and our... Uh, personal chief of security, Maverick Vaughn Evans, our 120-pound police-trained German shepherd. And uh, we stuck him in the command center in the back of the SUV, and we uh, started, and we did. We left end of March of 2013. We did not get back to the beach in Florida until the end of October. Wow. Wow. And met hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, just astounding. And many, many uh, minor league and major league oil parks wanted to be involved in it. And I'll tell you, this story is we halfway, uh, one third uh, to halfway through the, the deal, we went and played Target Stadium in Minneapolis where the Twins play. And uh, we had a chance to break a world record. In other words, the, the largest single audience watching 
a movie in one place at one time. The previous record had been 24,800 people, and they had been assembled in a soccer stadium in Brazil somewhere in 2012 to watch a movie. And uh, the Twins didn't sell out. I think there was about 40,000 people in the stands that day. It rained cats and dogs. Nobody left, okay? And it rained so hard that they said, well, rather than cancel the, the, the ball, ball game, it was the, the Twins and the Bow Sox, we'll just run the movie now. So we had almost 40,000 people watching The Sandlot all at the same time, and they also pumped it to every other monitor in, in Target Stadium. We had that movie on almost 700 screens all at the same time. Okay? <laughs> I am not kidding, Bob. And we were just ag- astounded, astounded <laughs> at, at, at the love. The, the, and by the way, Twins fans, they are hardcore, man. No, no umbrellas. They just sat there you know, in the rain and, and laughed and had a great time. And uh, we became the number one worldwide Twitter feed that moment. All of them got in there and said, oh, you know what? Watching the Sandlot at the stadium right now. It's incredible, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> David Ortiz, when, you know, Josh Maurer, all these guys were tweeting about it. We became the number one feed. And an hour later, the one, believe it or not, the one Major League Baseball team that told us, no way, we're not interested, we don't want to screen it at our stadium, were the Dodgers, the Los Angeles Dodgers. And Dodger Stadium is where I shot the beginning and the end of the film. <laughs> and they didn't want anything to do with it until they saw that we were the number one worldwide Twitter feed. And, you know, the Bo Sox and, and the Twins and all the fans were there just screaming, going crazy. So <clears throat> they got on board lickety split. And uh, <laughs> I'm glad they did because that was just about the last screening we had was September 1st last year at Dodger Stadium. It was like literally like coming home after 20 years. And we had nobody idea if anybody to show up. 61,000 people showed up. Wow. And, uh... Uh, there, the, the, the field was empty, and the Dodgers, I didn't know they were going to do this, gave me a game jersey, not one of the jerseys you get in the souvenir shop, a legitimate player's jersey with, on the back, it said Sandlot, number one. And they gave that to me and gave me a microphone and let me go out on the, on the field alone. There was nobody out on the field, and they introduced me. And Bob, not for nothing, but I got a five-minute standing ovation. Yes, I timed it. Okay? And... I, I mean, you can imagine, it took, it took me a while to compose myself. I was absolutely bawling my eyes out with gratitude. It was just incredible. And uh, then I had the pleasure. I had almost all of the original cast with me, you know, my direct photography, my production designer, my editor, you know, my producer and all that. We were all there. We all hugged it out, did a Q&A with the audience, and almost everybody stayed for the, uh, for the screening, which was, the mo- I've seen this movie on everything you can imagine, okay, every different kind of tv we got to watch the movie on uh, the two biggest you know dueling jumbotrons at, at, at dodger stadium and and what they did and this was really really cool was they roped off the infield but opened the outfield and let all the fans take their picnic blankets and their their sleeping bags and stuff and go and <laughs> hang out you had twenty five thousand people all next to each other all families with kids hanging out, watching the Sandlot on the grass at Dodger Stadium. Wow. It was an absolutely epic moment. It was incredible. It, it really was. Man alive. Uh, the, yeah. the king of Pacoima is uh, out right now, and I th- I'm, I'm looking at the notes. You can get it almost everywhere. And like you say, you've gotten some excellent reviews on this. 
And uh, you ever think about maybe you know redoing that radio flyer thing? Every single second, Bob. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. Is I it? would. I would. Uh, uh, I would uh, uh, throw myself uh, bodily at the opportunity to uh, to remake that movie, or perhaps not remake it, but make it the way that I I see it. And maybe that might happen one day. You know, you, stranger things have happened. Yeah. Hey, urban legend. Was there supposed to be a zombie in there? There was. Yeah. Well, there was. Huh? Yeah. Just yeah. think of there what was. it would yeah. be. Just there, think what it'd be like today if you did that then with zombies. Well, yeah. All right. <laughs> Yeah, it would. Well, I mean, you know, there you go, Walking Dead and all that. <laughs> but there was, huh? All righty. So anyway, that's available everywhere. And by the way, what's an espresso book machine? You know what? That is a really cool question, and I didn't know either until I actually saw one. It is literally a machine. It looks like a giant uh, copier or industrial printer, except that all of the sides are made of Lexan or, or plexiglass. You can see right inside it to watch the workings of the machine. It's tied to uh, the Espresso Book Machine's um, database. And in their database are millions of books, okay? All of the ready-to-print files for those books. So if you can find one of those in, in, in a mom-and-pop store or one of your brick-and-mortar bookstores, you can go in, go to their screen, touch screen, Search for the book you want, pay the money, hit go, and that book will literally print right before your eyes in five minutes and slide <laughs> out right into your hand. I gotta <laughs> find one. I gotta see that. I gotta see it that. It is so cool. It is the coolest thing you ever saw. David Mickey Evans, I've kept you way, way too long, but thank you so much. The King of Pacoima. Check it out, folks. And by the way, that's P A C O I M A. And uh, I had to look that uh, city up, by the way. I wasn't quite sure. but uh, Yeah, northeastern San Fernando Valley. And you can uh, get the book on Amazon or go to flyingwagonbooks.com. That's my little publishing house. And you can get it there. Bob, uh, thank you very, very, very much. I always enjoy talking to you, mate. Very good. Take care, my friend. You too.